Hello, James Kenny here, and welcome to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, The Evolution of the Irish from Biblical Times. This is episode number 28, entitled The Clan Gael in America and The German Connection 1914. I hope you like this, and please share with others on social media. If you wish to become a patron, please visit www.landofthegoldensunset.com dot podbean dot com For over forty years the exiled leaders of the failed Irish Rising of eighteen sixty nine had been lying in wait in New York City hoping for another chance to strike a blow against England for Irish freedom. Their organisation, the Clan na Gael, or Irish Clan, included thousands of Irish Americans willing to give moral and financial support to the fight for Irish freedom, and to use force if necessary. In Ireland, the Clan na Gael's brother organisation, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, headed by Tom Clark, was, by necessity, a secret organisation. To increase their influence, IRB members had infiltrated the various Irish organisations and societies. There were also the Irish volunteers, who were busy training for military action, although they so far lacked arms and ammunition. The time for action came in the summer of 1914, when England and Germany were at war. John Devoy, the 71-year-old driving force behind the Clan na Gael in New York, saw his opportunity. He and Sir Roger Casement, a former British consul dedicated to Irish freedom, arranged a meeting between the Western Hemisphere's top-ranking German diplomat, Count von Bernstorff, and a delegation of Clan na Gael men at the German club, in New York City. There, the Clan Gale presented their plan to the Germans. Their friends in Ireland, they told Van Bernstorff, were planning to use the opportunity provided by the war to mount an insurrection against England. They did not have an adequate supply of guns or of military leaders, but the Clan Gale was ready to pay for these. It would be mutually beneficial for the Germans to supply guns and military leaders so the Irish could stage an uprising and thus divert England's military away from Germany. Von Bernstorff listened with close attention and with what Devoy took to be sympathy. After asking many questions, von Bernstorff promised to send the clan's proposal on to Berlin. However, von Bernstorff's wireless sent soon afterwards to Berlin, was not enthusiastic. He believed that the Irish were in accord with Redmond, the leader of the Irish nationalists, who had pledged Ireland's loyalty to England for the duration of the war. John Devoy realised that more direct communication with Berlin was needed. He decided to send the clan's own written statement hand-delivered by someone who could present it persuasively and answer any questions. Also, 
England's control of the seas made it virtually impossible to communicate with the central powers by postal or cable communications. It was difficult, however, to find someone high enough within the Clan Nagale organisation to be able to carry out such a sensitive and crucial mission. Who could pass undetected through British security carrying messages to an enemy country? John Devoy chose New Yorker John Kenny, an Irish-born 67-year-old native of John Devoy's own home county, Kildare. Kenny had arrived in New York around 1870 after a short stay in Australia. He had served the cause of Irish freedom in many ways. As president for several terms of the Clan na Gael, or Napper Tandy Club, as well as in taking an active part in all the Clan Gale activities of the time. From the famed Catalpa rescue of six leaders of the 1867 uprising from an Australian penal colony to the starting of the Land League and the Friends of Irish Freedom. During his tenure as president, a young 23-year-old Tom Clark had arrived from Ireland and joined the clan, was quickly elected secretary. When the clan went out for volunteers for a special mission to London, Tom Clark approached Kenny to offer his services, and Kenny accepted. The mission ended in Clark's capture by the British, and 15 years in a British prison. Shortly after his release from prison, Clark returned to New York to join John Devoy and the clan Nagale. In 1907, Tom Clark went back to Dublin to prepare Ireland for an armed uprising becoming the hub of the Irish Revolutionary Brotherhood. Over the years, John Kenny had made many trips between New York and Ireland for both business and pleasure. For a period, 1885 to 1891, he moved his family back to County Kildare to work on the Land League. Over the years, he had stayed in close contact with the IRB, carrying messages between the clan and the IRB. Kenny was also a writer, his poetry and articles on current and historical matters appearing often on the Gaelic American, along with articles featuring his presence or speeches at Irish events in New York. When John Devoy approached Kenny in 1914, John Kenny was again the president of the Clan na Gael, as well as vice president of the Irish Republican Brotherhood Veterans Association. A member of the American Provisional Committee, Irish National Volunteers, formed to arm the Irish National Volunteers in Ireland, a delegate and contributor to military action, although they, so far, lacked arms and ammunition. The time for action came in the summer of 1914, when England and Germany went to war. In Ireland, the Irish Parliamentary Party achieved electoral success in the 1880s and was supported by the British Prime Minister William Gladstone, who introduced the unsuccessful Government of Ireland Bill 1886. Gladstone's party then divided over Home Rule and the IPP also divided for a decade over Parnell's marriage to Mrs Kitty O'Shea. In 1891, a moderate offshoot of the Clan na Gael broke away and formed an organisation under the name of the Irish National Federation of America, with Thomas Addis Emmet, 1828-1919, as president. 
His grandfather, also Thomas Adesemet, was appointed New York State Attorney General in August 1812 and was the older brother of the 1803 revolutionary Robert Emmet. The Federation supported the National Party of Ireland, a splinter group of Parnell's Home Rule Party. James Quinn, in the Directory of Irish Biography, tells us that Thomas Adesemet, the grandfather, 1764 to 1827, United Irishman and lawyer, was born on the 24th of April 1764 in Cork. Second son of Robert Emmet, State Physician of Ireland, and Elizabeth Mason. He entered Trinity College on the 7th of July 1778, won a scholarship in 1781, and graduated BA in 1783. In that year, he went to Edinburgh to study medicine and graduated MD in 1784. He went to Guy's Hospital, London, in spring of 1785 and worked there for about two years before touring the main continental schools of medicine. In 1787, he jointly held the patent for state physician with his father. While in Paris in spring 1788, Emmet heard of the death of his brother Christopher Temple Emmet and returned to Ireland. The Emmets were devastated by the loss of such a talented eldest son, and with his father's encouragement, Thomas changed his profession from medicine to law. He graduated LLB from TCD in 1788, attended Lincoln's Inn 1788-90, and was called to the Irish Bar in 1790. His family connections and oratorical and legal skill soon made him a leading figure at the bar, with a very profitable practice. On the 11th of June 1791, he married Jane, daughter of the Reverend John Patton, a Presbyterian minister at Clonmel, County Tipperary, and the young couple shared Dr. Emmett's large house on Stevens Green, Dublin. Her uncle was the naval surgeon, James Patton. Exposed to liberal politics at home and at university, on the 14th of December 1792, he joined the Dublin Society of the United Irishmen and became one of its most prominent and active members. He defended well-known radicals in court, including James Napper Tandy in 1792, Dennis Driscoll in September 1793, and advised William Drennan before his trial in June 1794. Emmet, a Protestant, was strongly opposed to religious discrimination, and in October 1792, his friend, Theobald Wolfe Tome, introduced him to the Catholic Committee, for which he wrote some addresses, including the committee's reply to an anti-Catholic resolution of Dublin Corporation. Tone considered him the best of all the friends to Catholic emancipation, worked two of Stokes and ten of Burroughs and a hundred of Drennan, and trusted him completely. Prior to his exile in America in 1795, Wolf Tone informed Emmet of his intention to seek a French invasion of Ireland, a step with which Emmet agreed. Although Thomas Emmet later claimed that he did not join the secret United Irish Organisation until 1796, he was closely involved in the Society's reorganisation in the autumn of 1794 into a cellular conspiracy after its suppression some months earlier. In 1796, when defending prisoners accused of taking the United Irish Oath, he himself took the oath in open court to prove its legality. He became a member of the Society's executive directory, in January 1797. With William James McNevin, he led the moderates who favoured French invasion over popular insurrection, claiming that it was more likely to succeed and would result in less bloodshed. 
and destruction of property. Others, such as Arthur O'Connor and Lord Edward Fitzgerald, pressed for a rising without the French. An effective propagandist, he wrote the Montanus Letters, which appeared at irregular intervals in the press from October 97 to February 98. And he denounced the pernicious effects of British rule, such as religious bigotry and widespread poverty. He was also active in the Citizens Committee that gathered evidence of military atrocities, which was presented to Sir Lawrence Parsons in March 1798, when the government moved against the Leinster United Irish Directory. He was arrested at his home on the 12th of March 1798 and imprisoned in Newgate and later in Kilmainham. After the 1798 rebellion, he, O'Connor and Mac Nevin were chosen to negotiate the Kilmainham Treaty with the government, which ended executions of United Irishmen in return for general information and the prisoner's agreement to emigrate. As part of this agreement, he co-authored the Memoir of the Irish Union, effectively a justification of the United Irishmen's actions and appeared before the parliamentary secret committees that inquired into the origins of the rebellion on the 10th and 14th of August 1798. He portrayed the United Irishmen as reformers forced into revolution by government repression, and defiantly stated his continued commitment to United Irish principles, and his belief that, if Ireland were separated from England, she would be the happiest spot on the face of the globe. He complained bitterly of the government's bad fate throughout these negotiations, particularly their refusal to allow the prisoners to emigrate once they had given information. Because of his United Irish activities, his name was erased from the bar in 1798, and on the 18th of March 1799, he was exiled to Fort George near Inverness in Scotland with his fellow United Irish leaders. The regime at Fort George was relatively benign, and after a year he was joined by his wife and some of his children. While in Kilmainham he had written Observations of the Conquest of Ireland, 1171-1789, to and in Fort George he added part of an essay towards the history of Ireland, which gave a detailed account of the United Irishmen until 1795, and was published in MacNevin's Pieces of Irish History, 1807. At Fort George, there were serious strains among the prisoners, particularly between Emmett and Arthur O'Connor, who were only dissuaded from fighting a duel on their release by their colleagues. Released on the 30th of June 1802, some months after the Peace of Amiens, Emmett landed on the 4th of July 1802 at Cuxhaven, Germany, and travelled on to Amsterdam, where he was joined in August by his brother Robert, who intended to mount an insurrection in Ireland. Thomas considered going to America, but stayed in Brussels in the winter of 1802-1803, until persuaded by Robert to go to Paris in February 1803 as a United Irish envoy. He was in regular communication with the French government, which in May 1803 promised to invade Ireland with 25,000 men. On the 23rd of July 1803, Robert Emmett rose in Dublin without French assistance and was quickly defeated. In September, Thomas met Bonaparte, then First Consul, who assured him that the invasion would take place soon. In France, the personal and political enmity between O'Connor and Emmett grew increasingly bitter, as each represented himself as the official representative of the United Irishmen. The Jacobin sympathies of some in the Emmett camp 
and Emmett's completed complaints about France's broken promises alienated Bonaparte, who increasingly favoured O'Connor. O'Connor's appointment as general of the newly formed Irish Legion in February 1804 further disillusioned Emmett. By then he believed that a successful French invasion would simply establish an authoritarian puppet state in Ireland, and he denounced Bonaparte as the worst enemy Ireland ever had. On the 4th of October 1804 he sailed with his family for America, arriving in New York on the 17th of November. He settled in New York where, through the influence of the Jeffersonian Republicans, such as Governor George Clinton and his nephew, Mayor DeWitt Clinton, he was admitted by special legislation to the bar, without the usual study requirements. Emmett later repaid the Clintons with his staunch political support. In his first case at the bar, he represented a fugitive slave, and he occasionally acted as counsel for the New York Manumission Society. Because of his opposition to slavery, he had refused to consider living in the South. He soon built up a thriving practice, and at the height of his career was one of New York's most celebrated lawyers, earning $15,000 a year. Short-sighted, stooped, and often carelessly dressed, he looked older than his years, and was a serious man, not readily given to levity. A fellow lawyer described him as generous, humane, obliging, and strictly honest, but allowed that his zeal sometimes clouded his judgment. As an Irish radical, he initially attracted some animosity from Federalist lawyers, but in time, many Federalists came to appreciate his abilities, and he settled well into America. Irish nationalist commentators made much of his success, claiming it showed how an Irishman could prosper in a free republic. Emmett himself expressed his wish never to return to Ireland while it remained under British rule. For the first few years in America, he largely avoided political controversy. But in 1807, he exacted revenge on Rufus King, the Federalist candidate for governor of New York, who had opposed the admission of United Irish prisoners to the USA in 1798. He opposed him by mobilizing Irish-American opinion against him and defeated him. He became friendly with the then deeply unpopular Thomas Paine and was one of the executors of his will in 1809. In 1812, he was a non-successful Republican candidate for the New York City Assembly to assist DeWitt Clinton's presidential bid. His Republican connections led him to be briefly appointed Attorney General of New York State between August 1812 and February 1813. He formed close links with other exiled United Irishmen, such as McNevin and William Sampson, and attempted to assist Irish emigrants, writing Hints to Emigrants in 1816. A founder and first president of the Shamrock Friendly Society, he was also first president of the New York Irish Emigrant Society, which lobbied strongly for land grants in Illinois to be made available to Irish emigrants. A popular figure with the society's Irish Catholic community, he frequently represented them in disputes with local Orangemen. To support his large family, he maintained a heavy workload into his 60s and became an expert in the great legal battles over steamboat monopolies of the 1810s and 20s. Seized by a fit while in court, he died hours later at his home in New York on the 14th of November 1827. His funeral was attended by the city's leading politicians, officials and lawyers. 
He was buried in the churchyard of St. Mark's Broadway, New York, where a large white marble monument marked his grave. His grandson, Dr. Thomas Addis Emmett, 1828-1919, a prominent doctor and Irish-American activist, requested that he be reburied in Ireland so he could rest in the land from which my family came. Dr. Emmett was then interred in Glasnevin Cemetery in Dublin, the final resting place of many of Ireland's patriots in 1922. An obelisk to honour the memory of Emmett, mistaken by many to be the burial site, stands in St. Paul's Chapel graveyard in Lower Manhattan. The second son of Thomas Addis Emmett, John Patton Emmett, 1796-1842, a scientist and born in Dublin, raised mostly by his grandparents until he joined his parents in America in March 1805, married Mary Bird Farley Tucker in 1827, a native of Bermuda. They had two surviving children, including Thomas Addis Emmett, a leading American gynaecologist who was president of the Irish National Federation of America from 1892 to 1901. Rising to prominence within the clan from the 1890s were Daniel Cahillan, later to be a judge of the New York Supreme Court, and Joseph McGarrity. Daniel Florence Cahillan, Middletown, Orange County, New York, was an Irish-American lawyer and politician. He was the son of Timothy E. Cahillan and Ellen O'Leary. He graduated from Manhattan College in 1885. Then he studied law, was admitted to the bar in 1888, and practiced in Orange County. In September 1889, he moved to the Bronx, practiced law there, and entered politics, joining Tammany Hall. He was Grand Sachem of Tammany Society from 1908 to 1911. On the 18th of May 1911, he was appointed by Governor John Alden Dix to the New York Supreme Court to fill a vacancy caused by the election of James Aloysius O'Gorman as U.S. Senator for New York. In November 1911, Cohelan was elected to succeed himself. On December 28, 1923, he tendered his resignation to become effective on the 12th of January 1924, claiming that the annual salary of $17,500 was not enough to provide for his large family. He was a close associate of Irish revolutionary leader John Devoy and was influential in many Irish-American societies, including the Clan na Gael. Cahillan was involved with the financing and planning of the Easter Rising in Dublin and was instrumental in sending Roger Casement to Germany in 1914. He was chairman of the Irish Race Convention held in Philadelphia in February 1919 and active in the Friends of Irish Freedom from 1916 to 1934. strongly opposed President Woodrow Wilson's proposals for the League of Nations on the basis that the Irish Republic had been denied a policy of self-determination at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. Cahalan broke with both Eamon de Valera and Irish-American leader Joseph McGarrity in late 1919 on Irish-American political direction. He died at his New York City home on the 12th of November 1946 and was buried at Calvary 
cemetery in Queens. The objective of the Clan was to secure an independent Ireland and to assist the Irish Republican Brotherhood in achieving this aim. To this end, the clan was prepared to enter into alliances with others. So with the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, the clan found its ally in Imperial Germany. A delegation led by John Devoy met with the German ambassador in the US, Count Johann Heinrich von Bernstoff, and his aide Franz von Papen in 1914. This was followed by an emissary, John Kenny being sent on a mission to Berlin to discuss how the German war effort and Irish nationalism could cooperate. A controversial pro-German and Irish lecture was given in December 1914 to the Clan Gael on Long Island by the Celtologist Kuno Meyer. John Devoy, along with Roger Casement and Joseph McGarrity, were able to bring together both Irish-American and German support in the years prior to the Easter Rising. However, the German munitions never reached Ireland, as the ship Aud, carrying them, was scuttled after being intercepted by the Royal Navy. Joseph McGarrity, 1874-1940, was born in Carrigmore, County Tyrone, an Irish-American political activist best known for his leadership in the Clan na Gael in America and his support for Irish republicanism. He emigrated to the US in 1892 at the age of 18. He is reputed to have walked to Dublin before boarding a cattle boat to Liverpool disguised as a drover and then sailed to America using a ticket belonging to someone else. He settled in 4900 Winfield Avenue, West Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and became successful in the liquor business. However, his business failed on three occasions, twice due to embezzlement by his business partner. In 1893, Joseph McGarrity joined the Clan Gael, an Irish organisation based in America committed to aiding the establishment of an independent Irish state. The Clan Gael had been heavily involved with the Fenian Brotherhood that McGarrity had grown up hearing about, and by the latter half of the 19th century had become a sister organisation of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. In the decade just before McGarrity joined, the Clan Gael and the Fenian movement had waged the Fenian Dynamite Campaign, where they attempted to force Britain to make concessions on Ireland by bombing British infrastructure. However, this had caused a split within the Clan na Gael, which was not mended until seven years after McGarrity joined, when, in the 1900s, the factions reunited and pledged to support the complete independence of the Irish people and the establishment of an Irish Republic. In the years that followed the 1880s and 1890s, McGarrity is, amongst others, credited with helping to stitch the organisation back together and bring renewed strength to it. Joseph McGarrity helped sponsor several Irish race conventions and founded and ran a newspaper called The Irish Press from 1918 to 1922 that supported the War of Independence in Ireland. He was the founder of the Philadelphia chapter 
of the Clan na Gael. When Eamon de Valera arrived in the US in 1919, they struck up an immediate rapport, and McGarrity managed de Valera's tour of the USA. He persuaded de Valera of the benefits of supporting him and the Philadelphia branch against the New York branch of the Friends of Irish Freedom, led by John Devoy and Judge Daniel F. Cahillan. He became president of the American Association for the Recognition of the Irish Republic. He christened his newborn son, Eamon de Valera McGarrity. Although their relationship became strained upon de Valera's entry back into Dáil Éireann in the Irish Free State. Joseph McGarrity opposed the Anglo-Irish Treaty and travelled to Dublin in 1922 and assisted the development of the short-lived Collins-De Valera Pact by bringing De Valera and Michael Collins together before the 1922 Irish general election. The Irish Civil War saw a split in the Clan Gael, just as it had split Sinn Féin back in Ireland. McGarrity and a minority of the Clan Gael members supported the anti-treaty side, but a majority supported the pro-treaty side, including John Devoy and Daniel Cahillan. Furthermore, in October 1920, Harry Boland informed the Clan Gael leadership that the IRB would be cutting their ties to the Clan unless the IRB was given more influence over their affairs. Devoy and Cahillan resisted this, but McGarrity saw the clan's connection with the IRB as vital. McGarrity's faction was initially labelled Reorganised Clan na Gael. They were able to influence total control of the Clan na Gael's name, as Devoy was not able to keep effective organisation of the group. In general, however, the infighting amongst the Irish on both sides of the Atlantic was quite disheartening for the Irish-Americans, and in the years to come, neither pro- or anti-treaty sides of the Clan na Gael saw much in the way of donations. With the scope of the Clan na Gael now narrowed, and Devoy and Cahillan removed from the picture, McGarrity became chairman of the organisation. He did not support the founding of Fianna Fáil in 1926, and opposed the party's entry into the Dáil in 1927. Even after the Irish Civil War, McGarrity still supported the idea that a 32-county Irish Republic could be achieved through force. In the spring of 1926, he received IRA Chief of Staff Andy Cooney in America. Cooney and the Clan na Gael formally agreed that each organisation would support each other and that Clan na Gael would raise funds, purchase weapons and build support for the IRA in America. During the late 1920s, the Clan na Gael, as with most Irish-American organisations, was struggling. Having limped past the split caused by the Irish Civil War, the rejection of Fianna Fáil had caused a second split in the membership. Many Irish-Americans saw the IRA and Fianna Fáil as one and the same at that point, and the Clan Gael and McGarrity's hostility to them caused much friction. By July 1929, the Clan's membership in one of its strongholds, New York City, was down to just 620 paid members. Then in October that same year, Wall Street crashed and the Great Depression hit. In 1933, McGarrity was left almost bankrupt after he was found guilty of false bookkeeping entries. McGarrity's livelihood was saved when he became 
one of the main ticket agents in the US for the Irish hospital sweepstakes. He was a personal friend of Joe McGrath, one of the founders of the sweepstake, and the sweepstakes allowed McGarity to turn his fortunes back around. Despite the trying times of both the Clan de Gael and his personal life, McGarity held fast in his belief in physical force to achieve an Irish Republic. The IRA signed all its statements, J.J. McGarity, up until 1969, when the organisation split into the official and provisional movements. Thereafter, the term continued to be used by the officials, while the provisionals adopted the moniker P. O'Neill. The Clan de Gael continued to provide support and aid to the IRA after it was outlawed in Ireland by Eamon de Valera in 1936, but became less active in the 1940s and 50s, following Joseph McGarty's death in 1940. However, the organisation grew in the 1970s and played a key part in NORAID and was a prominent source of finance and weapons for the provisional IRA during the troubles in Northern Ireland from 1969 to 1998. It was on Good Friday morning All in the month of May A German ship was signalling Away out in the bay With twenty thousand rifles already far to land, but no answering signal did come from the lonely banner strand. signal from the shore so Roger sadly said no comrades there to greet me alas they must be dead but I must do my duty I mean to land So in a small boat rode ashore To the lonely banner strand The R.I.C. were searching for Sir Roger Found him at McKenna's boat Said they you are our foe Said he I'm a Roger Casement And I've come to my native land To free my Irish countrymen
Sir Roger prisoner And they sailed for London town T'was in the tower they laid him A traitor to the crown Said he, I am no traitor trial he had to stand for bringing German rifles to 